going to gym, and uh, <laughs> hopefully in a few weeks that's not a issue. Anyway, just taking a couple seconds to breathe. Good. It's hot. It's also windy, so it's hard to keep the windows open without getting cold. But windows on this side, the wind's actually coming in this direction. Maybe, well, if these guys don't mind, maybe cracking that window a little bit. If it gets cold, just close it. Good. Hot, out of breath. I guess I'm ready. So tonight's uh, topic is wise attitude and inner spaciousness. And I've noticed in the last few years, we, we seem to be talking more and more about this, about wise attitude. Um, I know Narayan's talking more about it, I'm talking more about it, and even Larry is getting around to talking uh, more about it. And, uh, I, and the reason is, is that uh, it can save a lot of energy, a lot of heartache in practice, a lot of feelings of discouragement and self-doubt. You know, if one takes the time to reflect, you know, pretty much regularly within your own practice, in terms of taking a look at what kind of attitude are we bringing into practice. And what I'd like to say is that if we can approach practice, if we can kind of re-educate our attitude in practice, we can drop about, I'd say, 90 to 95% of the suffering uh, that we, ex- we experience in relationship to practice. Because so much of our suffering in relationship to practice, to meditation, has to do just with carrying an attitude that is unskillful, that's unhelpful. You know, an attitude that is conditioned, you know, conditioned by the culture that we live in, uh, conditioned by our education. I'm going to say more about that later. One reason why attitude is so important, why wise attitude is so important, is because inevitably for all of us on this path of awareness, we are going to encounter obstacles and challenges. Just before this talk, I was kind of going over what I was going to say with Narayan, and she kind of warned me against making a really long list of the challenges and obstacles we face, uh, because she was afraid I would scare people away. Uh, And sometimes, if you knew what you were getting into, um, you might not do it, um, because you you really do have to investigate and take a look at and, and meet difficulties along the way. But fortunately, the path of Dharma is not about getting stuck or limited by those difficulties, but rather letting go of the burden of suffering. But let me just go through a few of the very common um, challenges and obstacles that we encounter and, in a sense, have to see through and overcome. Certainly one of the main ones um, that inevitably we face is, is the mind, of course, 
and the nature of most of our minds is very habitual. And oftentimes one of the first insights that one has when one sits, and this, this, this insight actually occurs usually very quickly for people, and um, people actually don't realize it's an insight. They think something's wrong, uh, that they're doing something wrong. But the insight is that the mind is extremely repetitive, it's out of your control, your thoughts are coming and going, and you don't have much say over what the nature of those thoughts are. In other words, there's a lot going on there. And as we practice the path of awareness, we begin to wake up to the fact that that's how our mind functions. You know, we may come into the practice feeling we're very bright, intelligent, clever, uh, good problem solvers, and then we sit down and we discover that actually we're pretty boring. Uh, we have a lot of uh, repetitive, trite, small, petty, self-centered thoughts. In fact, 99.9% .9 of our thoughts are self-centered. Um, and just look at your thoughts over in a sustained way, and almost always what we discover is the I and the me and the mind in those thoughts. You know, they just, the, the universe is me and mine in the world of thought. So when we talk about inner spaciousness, that mind is not particularly spacious. Yeah. So the power of habit, and the power of habit expresses itself in so many ways. It, it expresses itself in the way we relate to each other, you know, the power of habit in terms of how we relate to ourselves. Uh, there's a strong tendency to react to certain conditions very habitually. You know, even if you know better, those reactions will surface. And usually what happens is if we encounter something pleasant, the mind habitually holds on to it. It wants more. Or if we encounter something painful or unpleasant, we want to get away. We contract around it. And so as we begin to wake up to the mind and what it's doing, from one moment to the next, that's what we begin to discover. And it's one of the universal uh, features of our conditioned mind is just the fact that it is very conditioned by habit, by the past, by the kinds of things we've learned to do along the way. We also get very attached to ideas about who we are. And those ideas are very, very tenacious. And for most of us, ideas about who we are, we underestimate what our potential is. Our ideas about ourselves are shaped by the past. And it's that past that keeps impeding itself on the present moment. So that we, it crowds the mind so that as it relates to the here and now, there are a lot of voices, there's a lot of conditioning that we're bringing into that moment in time. There's not a lot of spaciousness in that mind. There's a strong tendency to identify with emotions, with moods, mind states, or thoughts. And this is a major form of suffering, major form of suffering that contracts the mind, that narrows the mind, the sense of a solid self behind all our experiences. The sense of claiming things is me or mine. We can have a mind state that we can know intellectually comes and goes, but when it's happening, we claim it as me or mine. We give it a lot of weight. We give it a lot of weight. Instead of relating to it with awareness, awareness of the nature of that emotion, which is it's expressing itself in certain ways, it arises under certain conditions, it may be pleasant or unpleasant, and it changes. Those conditions change or we become aware of it. It doesn't have so much power anymore and it passes. And so we tend not to see that. And so 
identifying with those emotions can become quite an obstacle along the way. They often define us. You know, our, our thoughts and our moods and our emotions, we use them to define who we are. And we're so much more than that, or so much less. Another major challenge that we face, which is we live in a world which does not support awareness. You know, it doesn't encourage awareness. It's not part of the education system. You know, it's not part of our training. Um, we live in a world that um, is driven by self-interest, you know, driven by self-interest, that values these cultural values of materialism, uh, that values um, trying to find the right conditions, you know, that kind of obsession about having the right body, looking the right way, dressing the right way, having the right car, having the right home. You know, that, that sense of if only the conditions are right, then we're going to be happy. And our culture and everything that kind of, you know, fuels a tremendous amount of momentum and it's surrounding us. It's part of the fabric of our society that we live in. Very difficult to begin to question that on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. You know, the Buddha described Dharma, Dharma practice is swimming upstream. And in many ways, that's one of the aspects of swimming upstream, is that we're trying to do something a little bit different. You know, in Dharma practice, we actually value generosity, our loving kindness. You know, we value this awareness that we're interconnected, that we're not self separate selves. You know, we see other values. It's not to dismiss the importance of conditions or dismiss material objects or, or, or shelter and, and livelihood. And all of those things are very, very important, but it's important to see beyond that. To also value spiritual, spiritual qualities. Things like loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, sense of being present. So in many ways, you know, there are some meditation centers, there's a lot of teaching now about the Dharma and all of that's good. But a lot of times we're not, you know, we're not around that. We don't live at meditation centers, we're not constantly listening to Dharma tapes, we have lots of things to do, lots of responsibilities to fulfill. Um, so, you know, reminders and encouragement and support sometimes is quite thin. And so, um, oftentimes we have to be very committed to waking up. You know, we have to question very deeply what we're doing and how we're spending our energy, how we're spending our time and taking a look at that and seeing if we're on track. You know. So given the nature of our conditioning, you know, kind of how driven society is and what it values, we, of course, take a lot of that attitude, and you know, we take that conditioning into meditation practice itself. And in places that I certainly was aware of in my own practice uh, that I had to um, take a look at, qualities like impatience. You know, when we sit down, we want it. Uh, we want it now. Uh, and we don't really want to hear about the fact that it could take a while. Uh, you know, we want to taste the fruit right away. If we don't taste the fruit right away, Oftentimes, we start getting doubtful. You know, we might doubt the practice itself, or we might doubt ourselves in our ability to practice. So often, um, that's the case for folks who have been practicing maybe a year or two, 
is that things were kind of smooth sailing at the beginning. And then, you know, then the concentration, it doesn't seem quite as strong or, or there seems to, you know, we're waking up more to thoughts so we're seeing a lot more of the wandering mind of thoughts and we interpret that. Yeah. We don't interpret it that we're waking up actually and seeing things more clearly. We interpret it that something's going wrong with our practice. And so often, especially um, around here, I think in this culture, at least especially in the East Coast, uh, there's a tremendous striving that happens in practice. You know, there's a lot of striving. Uh, you know, that energy of trying to make something happen in your practice, that energy of becoming, you know, becoming a good meditator, becoming an enlightened being, or becoming fearless, or becoming anything other than what we are. Uh, as long as it looks better. Um, so that striving energy we take into the practice, and of course that becomes an obstacle, a challenge to discovering more inner spaciousness. So from the very beginning, I guess I wish I had been given this teaching, actually. I, didn't, I really wasn't for quite a while. I kind of had to learn the hard way, um, which is from the very beginning of practice, no matter how long you've been practicing, um, trying to cultivate wise attitude in practice, an attitude that um, doesn't create obstacles for us, you know, that doesn't fuel that striving mind, that mind of becoming. And so one aspect of wise attitude is the attitude of relaxation. Believe it or not, that's an important part of this meditation practice. You know, we talk a lot about insights and seeing clearly and samadhi or concentration. But a lot of those qualities point to nurturing relaxation in our practice. So if we can enter into the practice with a more relaxed attitude, a tremendous, as I said earlier, tremendous amount of the drive the comparing, the evaluating, the striving, the suffering in the face of all that begins to drop away. It begins to drop away. So what does it mean to have an attitude of relaxation? What it means is that we enter into the practice, practice of awareness, by letting go of any attachment that we have to any agenda that we have about what should be happening or what shouldn't be happening. So just let's take just a few seconds to reflect on what that attitude might support. What might that attitude of not being attached to any agenda at all, does it mean that we don't put any effort in practice? No. No, we don't. We do need to make effort in practice. I'll say more about that quality of effort in a minute. But is it possible, actually, to make an effort to be aware, an effort to be present, without being attached to a particular agenda, without being attached to a particular set of results? And what I'd like to say is yes. And if we can nurture that attitude, it's tremendously liberating. It's liberating because we let go of that burden of striving and achieving 
in becoming, which gets in the way of relaxing. We know that. Okay? But it also creates the right attitude, the right conditions for us to actually make discoveries in the practice. You see? If we read a book, we get attached to what is supposed to happen. That becomes our agenda. It gets in the way of opening to the here and now. And that's where insight occurs. That's when insight occurs. When we don't have a particular agenda, the mind begins to learn. It can't learn. There's not enough space in the mind to learn if we have a particular agenda. Because that agenda is conditioned. It's conditioned by our past. It's conditioned by notions of success and failure. It's conditioned by the Dharma books that we read. You know, the inspirational stories that we read, they can get in the way. You know, they might help motivate us in practice, but if we adopt that and then say, well, this is what's supposed to happen. When I sit down, I've been practicing for two years, when I sit down, my samadhi, my concentration should be really good. You know, most of the time, anyway. Okay? That I should at least be able to watch five or six or seven breaths in a row. Okay? <laughs> Something like that, you know? I've been... You know, doing this a really long time and working really hard and coming to CIMC and I have a daily practice. At least I should be somewhere other than where I began. In fact, it doesn't even feel, it feels like I'm going backwards. I get that a lot. I'm going backwards in my practice. No, you're not going backwards in your practice. One is just beginning to wake up, you know, to the nature of the mind. You know, at the beginning, things can be very calm and quiet. But then after you sit for a while, you know, the energies of boredom or restlessness or, or the agenda, you know, the attachment to the agenda starts creeping in. You know, at the beginning, you might just sit because, you know, you just, for the hell of it, you know, a friend of yours told you you really need to sit. And so uh, you start sitting and you don't really have any idea of what's supposed to happen. You know, you know no expectations. You don't expect to be an expert. You know, you know you're here to kind of learn something. Um, and you're practicing with other people who think it's a good idea, so maybe it is a good idea. Um, and that's it. That's it. That's such a healthy attitude. I can't tell you what a healthy attitude that is in practice and how quickly that evaporates. You know, as soon as we start putting energy, you know, once we say, I'm really committed to this practice, you can just see it in people's face. Okay, be committed, definitely. It takes a commitment. But... Don't accumulate ideas about what is supposed to happen. If we can actually sit and just say, okay, let's just see what's going to happen. I think this is worthwhile to sit and see what I can learn from my experience. And the way I'm going to try to learn from my experience is try this thing called mindfulness, you know, which is something kind of new. I don't really know, let's say, what it is, but I know it's different than just thinking about an experience. So it's not about meditating and thinking really high, transpersonal, transcendent thoughts about the universe and our interconnectedness and all that. Okay? No, it's, it's much more basic than that. It's just simply being aware of what your experience is from one moment to the next. That's it. Period. That's it. Being mindful of what your experience is from one moment to the next. So mindfulness, this ability to know what's happening in the present moment. Okay? What's wonderful about mindfulness and why we want to put some effort into nurturing it is because it, the, we, the innate quality of mindfulness 
allows us to enter into the present moment without any preconceptions. You know, without any preconceptions, because the preconceptions are what's driving the agenda. The preconceptions about when you sit down, this is supposed to happen, or no, this isn't supposed to happen. The wandering mind shouldn't be taking away for five minutes. Maybe it should, only, it should have only taken me away for a minute, or ten seconds, or five seconds, whatever the expectation might be. And so we can begin to see that how, um, how the agenda be, gets in the way, how, how it starts crowding the mind, how it starts fueling the striving mind, because as long as we have an agenda, we've got to get that agenda met. You know, that's our conditioning. Have a goal, go get it. Even if we take the goal to relax, okay, and we attach to that idea, you know, this new idea, or maybe it's not a new idea, but attach to that idea, we suffer. Because there's times when we're not necessarily going to be relaxed. There's times when we're going to be holding a lot of tension, both in the body and the mind. In that case, the job is to simply be mindful of non-relaxation. Not to have an agenda about being relaxed. Now, there's a difference between being attached to an agenda and having aspirations. Big difference. In other words, realistically, nobody would be willing to sit with what you have to sit with. All this stuff, bored and blah, blah, blah. Unless one had some aspiration for liberation in that. You know, unless one had a sense that this was something valuable and that there was something to learn here and that maybe we're not totally happy, but maybe there's a possibility of dis discovering something more reliable, something within us, something unconditioned, something not so limited by our ideas. Okay, and to have that aspiration, to have that realization. Well, I think we should have that aspiration because that's what this practice is about. If you don't have that aspiration, it may be the wrong practice. In other words, if you, you might have an aspiration to have a particular experience, some great, wonderful experience that you can then carry along with you. Um, that's, not this that's not this practice. This practice is not designed to, to do that. Not at all. This practice, rather, is about developing wisdom and insight into whatever conditions you find yourself in. It's about learning from your experience as you're experiencing it, in the moment itself, in the here and now. The practice is portable. It's not located in meditation centers. Meditation centers are valuable, definitely. They help a lot in supporting our practice. The sitting meditation is crucial for training the mind because of the degree of conditioning that we have. Sitting is extremely valuable for nurturing more calm, for developing more confidence and insight. Very helpful for working with developing the ability to be more present and more mindful. But ultimately, your life is your practice. And this practice is designed to develop clarity, wisdom, compassion in the life that you're living, wherever you find yourself. wherever you find yourself. So with wise attitude, if we can cultivate that, remind ourselves about that, that it's about relaxing and letting go of the agenda, 
in, in dropping all the expectations and the demands that we place on ourselves. Or if we can recognize the mind that's always comparing and evaluating. You know, always comparing and always evaluating, wondering whether you're measuring up, whether you, wondering whether you're doing right. If we can begin to recognize those, uh, those, that's the fruit of being attached to a particular agenda. And if we can begin to let that go and practice relaxing and just settling into the here and now and just paying attention in an open-hearted, non-judging way, totally with the intention, with the intention to learn. That's it. With the intention to learn. Nothing else. Nothing else. Just the intention to learn. And what we're learning is something profound and deep. And that's why it takes perseverance and patience in wise attitude. Because what we're learning is we're learning to understand the nature of our suffering. And what we're learning is understanding what leads to liberation from suffering. And what we're understanding and seeing quite clearly as we go along this path is what is the path that leads to liberation and what is the path that leads to suffering. And we're learning that for ourselves. We're learning that for ourselves. Pretty good, you know, pretty good. I mean, it's a big process of investigation and inquiry, and it always happens in the here and now. You know, in our tradition, you know, in all the traditions of Buddhism, there are many, many stories, many examples of people that awaken you know, in the middle of doing ordinary activities in life, you know, chopping vegetables, cleaning a bathroom, you know, walking down the street. A leaf falls, and they experience that in a fundamentally new way. They experience that with a fresh mind, a completely open mind. And so deep insight can arise at any point in one's life. One doesn't have to practice for 30 years. One tastes liberation along the way. It's not something that you have to become a monk for or have to do 25 three-month retreats, or any of that. All we have to do is let go of our ideas about how, what we think of ourselves, what we think we should be experiencing, instead taking a look at what we're actually experiencing. And see, the virtue of having that attitude is it allows us to engage, in, engage with suffering when we encounter it in a very different way. Yeah, that's the advantage. That's the advantage. Our conditioning when we encounter suffering, whether it's within ourselves or others, is that we move away. We contract around it. We don't want to have that experience of suffering. Now, Dharma doesn't make a virtue of suffering by any stretch, but rather it trains us to relate to and hold suffering so that we can learn from that experience, so that we can investigate it, so that we can inquire into the nature of that suffering. Instead of getting caught, for instance, in looking at the condition that we're facing as the cause of suffering, we can take a look at ourselves. We can begin to see how we're relating to that condition. And we discover that we actually have some say over how we relate to those conditions. 
when we have that attitude. You know, a good example um, actually came to me as I was driving to work tonight. Um, just recently, we moved out of Cambridge and we're living in a town, Watertown. We're living, we moved a little town next door. Um, and it really a nice, good decision to go, nice change, nice change of pace. We like Watertown quite a bit, actually. Don't everybody move there? Um, on that recommendation. It's getting crowded. <laughs> uh, but you can move there if you want to. Um, anyway, so what, what, I used to live two blocks from here. So if I had a class at 7.15, I left at 7.14. Uh, you know, it took me literally one minute probably, and I'm a, fa I'm a fast walker. You know, really quick. You know, just roll off the cushion and roll off from you know, the dining room table and I'd be here. And now I'm commuting. And that means I'm driving, of course, like many of you, actually, who are commuters. Um, now, I've always known that I've had a bit of a problem uh, with my attitude in driving. Um, having grown up in the Northeast, this is what I know. Um, you know, this is the, the cultural values of drivers are get there as quick as you can and hell with everybody else. Um, so I'm driving a lot more than I used to. And I'm driving across the city, and I'm not even driving in conditions that many of you face, which is you know rush hour, a zillion cars. I mean, once in a while it's rush hour, but a lot of times it's not rush hour. But still, there are many challenges along the way. Um, so, how to relate to that commuting? You know, I know I have a certain set of conditioning, and one of the things I've discovered. I mean, I I can't believe I didn't see it until now, which is I'm extremely attached to particular agendas around how people should be driving. <laughs> I mean, incredible. I am constantly engaging in, uh, you know, a friend suggested I become a driving lesson instructor, uh, <laughs> but I realized that would drive me insane. Uh, but I'm constantly engaging in dialogues with others who are sharing the road with me, uh, and that there's a quality of impatience in that energy. Uh, and that's conditioning. You know, it's conditioning coming up under certain set of conditions. And the conditioning, I, you know, I'm almost ashamed to admit it. Uh, that some of my thoughts are just amazing. You know, just horrible thoughts. Um, but either people are driving too slow or they're driving too fast. They're either not using their blinker or they've been using their blinker for two or three hundred yards and you can't pass them. You know, there's always something wrong. You know, and people should be listening to me. You know, people should do what I want them to do. That's the condition. And, and that I'd be much happier if they did. See, that's the delusion in the mind, is that little momentary reaction of why aren't they doing this, or why don't they do this, or why didn't they use their blinker. In that moment of reactivity, there's aversion in the mind. There's contraction. There's aversion. Now, objectively, people probably should use their blinkers. But the reality is, a lot of times, people don't. So how to relate to that without feeding the suffering? How to relate to that in a more spacious way? That's the question I ask myself. And what I've discovered, and it's not actually a new discovery, it's just applying the practice, is that I need to be aware of my reactions. I need to be aware of what I'm doing, the dialogues I'm getting into. 
you know, the different ways that I'm relating to the here and now in that particular experience. And what's helping that investigation, in other words, you can see in the shift, I'm beginning to take a little bit more responsibility, right, from my mind state, from my suffering. But what helps that shift, it's a big change, which is I, I really see that life is practice, that this is practice for me. Commuting is practice. You know, and I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot. Like I said, I'm, really, I'm learning this sort of overriding pattern that I wasn't really in touch with. I knew that there was a version in patience, but I wasn't really investigating it deeply enough because one thing was that I wasn't commuting. I get in the car sometimes and not drive as much, but in this situation, I knew that there was a certain amount of suffering and I knew I needed to take it up. I needed to have that attitude that when I get in that car and when I'm driving, I can't close my eyes and watch my breath. Uh-uh, it doesn't work. But I can take a look at what my mind is doing. One is when you're present, you're actually a better driver than when you're preoccupied, spaced out, cell phones, all that stuff. Right? If you're present, you're a better driver. But second, if you're present, one becomes more mindful of what we're doing inwardly in response to other people. And by being mindful, I'm not, we're not feeding those reactions. They're momentary. And I see that over and over again. I have these momentary reactions, I'm aware of them, and they're gone. Momentary reaction, awareness of it, they're gone. Now, there's a lot of folks out there that don't have a mindfulness practice. And they accumulate those reactions. And that's why oftentimes you see a lot of aggression, or a lot of anger on the road, even certain examples of kind of road rage, you know, and all the sort of subtle forms of that. is because one is accumulating that reaction in a very unconscious sometimes way, and we're not seeing it and letting it go. There's a lack of space in the mind. So that attitude, not just on the cushion, that whatever arises, I'm going to take a look at. You know? Nothing special has to happen. I'm feeling bored, okay. What does boredom, what is boredom? You know, not, not thinking about boredom, not to dwell on it, but just be with boredom. Try it sometime. The next time you're bored, on the cushion, instead of struggling with it, oh, I gotta get back to the breath, uh, you know, some, I gotta investigate uh, the breathing more, whatever it might be, just be bored. Sit there and be bored as long as you can. You know, just rest in boredom. In your life too. You find that you're sitting in the living room, you finish reading the newspaper, you're not going anywhere, nothing really special is happening, you're feeling kind of bored or restless, just be with that experience. Let yourself experience it. Relax into it. Don't worry about the way it is supposed to be or what you need to do to fix that problem, but just experience it. And lo and behold, boredom actually is an extremely interesting state of mind. It's very complex. You know, it has a lot to do with the quality of attention. You know, quite interesting to take a look at boredom. And the advantage of doing that is if we struggle with boredom, if we have an idea when we're sitting in the cushion we shouldn't have boredom, now we're adding another layer of suffering. There's the boredom, but then how we're relating to that boredom. Instead of seeing it as something that is not supposed to happen, we say, okay, boredom is arising. Let's just be with it. Let's take a look at it. You know, let's rest in that experience. Quite often when, it's, when we're bored, the body is kind of fidgeting and moving. There's a sense of um, 
dissatisfaction in the mind, a, a craving for something else to happen, just be with that experience from one moment to the next. It's extremely empowering to do that. It's extremely empowering to have the capacity to be bored and not do anything about it, or not even feel like you have to do anything about it. One can drop very deeply into the practice through resting the attention in boredom, rather than moving away. Let's see, if our attitude is, practice is always supposed to be interesting, I'm supposed to be having insights, I'm supposed to be concentrated, I'm supposed to be with the breath, if we attach to that attitude, it gets in the way. It creates suffering in the mind, and it prevents us from investigating and opening up to boredom so that, it, so that we're not so subject to the suffering around boredom. And in this culture, you know, boredom is really given a bad rap. You know, I mean, if, if somebody ever came up to us and said, you know, you're really a boring person, that would be one of the worst things. I know for me, if somebody said, you know, you're really boring, I, I, I would be insulted by that, actually, <laughs> even if it's true. Uh, I wouldn't like it, put it that way. And so boredom, what's wrong with being boring? So we've got to be boring some of the time. You know, I mean, we can't always be interesting. We can't always be on. Not everybody's going to be interested in our story. So, boredom. Just taking that particular state of mind, it can be a letting go of tremendous suffering if we can just be with that experience without moving away. Because what we're beginning to develop is more equanimity in practice. See, this is where the practice goes. It goes to, we're increasing our capacity to be with things as they are. Not as they should be but as they are. And we're not getting caught by it so much because we're cultivating awareness, so we're learning. And in that process of being able to hold our moment-to-moment experience, no matter what it's like, no matter how painful or how much we don't like, if we can just hold it with loving attention, with mindfulness, with an attitude of, oh, this is okay. You know, it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel angry in the sitting. I don't have to act from that place but I want to nurture this attitude of acceptance, of allowing whatever it is to be there. And then, lo and behold, through practice and training, we develop greater equanimity. You know, we develop less reactivity towards what our experience is. We get less caught by our reactions. More space in the mind is discovered. More space in the relationships in our everyday life is discovered. You know, over and over again, I've seen this. Times when I'm in conditions that I feel very closed or contracted. Another good example was Whole Foods, Monday night, 6.15, over there. <laughs> packed. Four lanes. Open, that's all. And it was just packed. I don't remember it ever being that crowded. And I was in a little bit of a rush because I had a class at 7 o'clock. And I had bought my little dinner, so I needed time to eat. Incredibly crowded conditions. Nothing horrible, obviously. Uh, but, you know, it's challenging. And you know, just recognizing you know, the tension that was in that particular room at that particular time, moments for me, but also just looking around the room and seeing the degree of impatience and stress and tiredness and people wanting to just kind of get out and get through that line and just relaxing into that experience proved to be incredibly connecting. You know? I looked around and I thought, you know, we're all in the same boat. I'm not separate. I'm practicing. I've been practicing 35 years. But we're all in the same boat. We're all human beings. 
You know, we, we often have a lot of the same desires, the same fears, the same way of relating to different conditions in life. We're different, obviously. Conditions we live in, the way we react to them is differently. Um, but there's much more commonality in our experience than we tend to, to recognize. So as I said, having this attitude of being accepting and more open-hearted, open-hearted, uh, not having the agenda. You know, interesting when we see ourselves when we're attached to a particular agenda in relationship with others, you know, just how that closes us down. You know, it really closes us down. It doesn't mean that uh, we can't have certain reasonable expectations or, um, you know, want to be treated a certain way, want to be listened to in certain ways or have a kind of loving relationships in our life. And of course, all of that is a good thing, good aspirations. But um, a lot of times, being attached to an agenda gets in the way. We tend to try to control others uh, to get that particular agenda met. Um, so fortunately, though, there's a way out. You know? And the Buddha discovered that very clearly. And in other words, there's a way out. Uh, there's, a, there's qualities that we can cultivate that allow us to be more relaxed, be more accepting, be more allowing, or be simply, which all of it translates into being in the here and now, you know, in an open-hearted way, connected to your life, connected to the activities that you're engaged in, connected to the relationships you're in. And that, of course, is mindfulness. And mindfulness is that innate quality that everybody in this room and everybody outside of that room has. So this attitude might sound like a great thing, but how, you know, I really can't, I can't get there, you know. I mean, that's not where I'm at. I really want something to happen. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to suffer. Um, so we can have those agendas, and we, we are going to have them. But what helps us translate that into reality is mindfulness. That's our support. That's the door towards wise attitude, and it's also the door towards liberation from suffering. Because what mindfulness does is it gradually and slowly leads to a deconditioning in the mind. It deconditions the mind. Mindfulness wakes us up and facilitates this transformation. So every moment that you just can feel the cushion that you're sitting on, you know, or feel the floor, or feel your breath, or aware of some reaction, a thought, a mind state, every moment of mindfulness strengthens our capacity you know, to be more present to learn from our experience, to enter into the here and now without any preconceptions so that we can learn, so that we can cultivate insight, so that we can understand the nature of our suffering, understand liberation. And so mindfulness facilitates this deconditioning process. And what that transformation looks like is it's a movement from living your life out of habit uh, to being awake, simply put. Instead of living a life based on habit, carrying around the legacy of the past into the here and now, being preoccupied or disconnected, unsatisfied, it's about moving from that habit to being awake. It facilitates this shift in consciousness from being somewhat disconnected from your body or disconnected from the relationships you encounter 
or disconnected from the activities that we're engaged in. You know, we all know how to wash the dishes, right? At least most of us can know how to wash the dishes. So we can do it without even paying attention. But there's something lost in that. You know, and there's a lot of activities that are just like that. It's the fabric of everyday life. And because we're intelligent enough to know and remember how to do things, we lose something. You know, we lose, a, we, we lose certain dimensions of that experience. We, learn, we lose the possibility of learning something really important about ourselves and about life itself. You know, things that can be discovered in the simplest of activities. So we want to bring mindfulness even into those ordinary activities because that opens up another track of learning. Not just learning how to be a better dishwasher. It's not so important. But, you know, what can we discover about ourselves? What are we attached to? Where do we suffer? Can we be aware of the fact that we want to just get this done so that we can move on? So there's that level of impatience in that. Another form of suffering. So that sense of being disconnected to a place where we can cultivate intimacy with what we're doing. Intimacy with all the activities that we're engaged in. Intimacy with others. When we're present and not disconnected, there's a natural flow of intimacy. There's a sense of being there. Uh, you know, it's almost like you're in a listening mode. Even if you're speaking, the mind is open, not attached to an agenda, not somewhere else. So we can train ourselves not to be so disconnected through the mindfulness practice. It's a shift from reactivity to inner freedom and equanimity. It's a shift from confusion, not seeing clearly what is going to bring us happiness. And this is so important for everybody to discover is what will bring a reliable form of happiness to us? Is it possible to, dis- to discover inner contentment? Even one moment of inner contentment where things don't have to be different, where we don't have to be different. And that's not resigned, it's not passive, it's not depressed. It's just, just profound and radical acceptance and awareness of the here and now. Um, and it's a shift from relying on second-hand knowledge, you know, things that have been taught to us, uh, and instead seeing directly for oneself. You know, that's the path of awareness. It, we develop the ability to see for ourselves. We definitely do not have to buy into what the Buddha is saying. You know, we don't have to buy into anything that anyone is saying. We just need to take a look ourselves and see if the discoveries that he made 2,500 years ago are discoveries that we might make if we pay attention. And what I've discovered, underlined discovered, is that what he said was true. What he said was true. It rings true. It's my experience from looking. And in that looking, finally, what we discover is liberation. Freedom. Unburdening the heart. On a very profound and deep level on a moment-to-moment level. You know, we can discover that unburdening in any moment of time. There's so many opportunities, there's so many moments of suffering in a day. And if we develop an ability to take a look at it in an open-hearted, investigative way, uh, we can see through it. And we can let go of what we're clinging to. We can let go of the cause of that suffering in that moment in time. Let's just sit for a minute.
Hi, Etch. Um, it's definitely always draws me to meditate and to lioness retreats and uh, practice, though it may be limited in my case or not, that we really do need to not be conditioned and cultivate inner space. Yeah. And so that's essential to emancipation. Mm -hmm. What I'm keep feeling after fully agreeing with that is what is next? Because while we have, however much we succeed in detaching ourselves from conditioning and finding more inner peace, and which is totally valid beginning, the world involves choices yeah. and compulsory circumstances, sure. conflict. Mm -hmm. There's just no way you can remain simply observing things as they are and then not engaging yeah. in life. Yeah, I agree. So, and that involves choices. Yeah. And that is in a form of attachment. No. Okay, well then, it would be great to describe how it's not an attachment when we have to make choices why some action might be mm -hmm. in some way preferable yeah. or deserving of a commitment yeah. to action yeah. over another. Yeah, sure. And we don't need to call it attachment because I agree that there's this condition kind of... Yeah, I mean, you've got to make choices and decisions. Right, so... The key, is to, make, the key is to make wise choices. Right, so does the Dharma talk about once you've calmed yourself down and freed yourself from conditioning, <clears throat> how one makes choices where you can't just stand by and watch? Well, it's, it's not that simple, I guess, where you just sit down, you, you free yourself of your conditioning, and then you go out in the world and you're, I don't know, not acting in a conditioned way. I mean, the fact is when you're in different conditions, other than being on a cushion, different things may arise. You know, you could be at work, you're in a situation. Mindfulness is very simple, that awareness of knowing what your experience is in the moment. Wisdom is not simple. Okay? Wisdom is complicated. You know? So applying the practice requires wisdom and compassion. It requires discernment. Uh, you know, and mindfulness is a part of that. But you know, basically what we want to learn to do on this planet is to be guided, our choices guided by wisdom and compassion. You know, whatever that wisdom might be in that particular moment in your particular circumstances, and that's true for everybody's situation. You know, there's no formula that you can just go through and live your life. You have to respond to, like you said, what's actually happening. When you face conflict at work or you face conflict in the world or you face conflict in your relationship, intimate relationships, well, how to respond to that, you know, instead of just reacting from a conditioned place. You know, reactions are inevitably going to come up. And in the face of conflict, the difficulty, or painful situations, we're going to react with aversion often. But practice is to take a look at that aversion, to, to be mindful of it, to take responsibility for the aversion. And in that process of taking a look at that, it creates a little bit more space in the mind for another, uh, for, for another response that might not be reactive. You know? But often the first step is to be mindful, first of all, of what your experience is, so that you know what your intention is. What's guiding you? What energy are you bringing into this situation? You know, and, and we need that self-knowledge. You know, we need to know, you know, like I need to know what energy I'm bringing into when I'm in that car. You know, I need to recognize that impatience because if I recognize it, I'm, I don't have to feed it anymore. And then I can let those people cross the street or then I don't have to cut that person off or beat my horn at the person or any of that. I can choose to do things that are wise and compassionate. Uh, but each situation that you're in requires that clear seeing. See, that's what we're developing, is the ability to see clearly. 
you know, to understand, you know, what causes suffering and what doesn't, but in each situation that you're in. So it's very fluid. It's something you have to keep discovering in a sense. See, that's the part we all agree on. Yeah. The yeah. First step good. We all agree on, well, good. Which you restated. But then when this concept at work, say, yeah. What is, is there any guidance from the positive that wants you to follow the first step meaningfully about the substantive wisdom of what to do when you're well, uh, well, no, but see, I think the wisdom that comes out of practice is, is your wisdom. You know, in, in other words, I can't tell you what the wise thing to do is in your situation. I might have a suggestion if I knew all the specifics about your situation, but there's no way I can say to you, well, you know, there's conflict at work, you should, uh, you know, go off in a corner and sit, or you should do, you know, you should tell everybody that they should be meditating. Uh, I mean, I can't, you know, I don't know what wisdom would be in that particular situation. A lot of it depends on the nature of the conflict and the nature of the situation you're in. And that's why life needs to be lived. You know, all we can do is try to cultivate more awareness you know, about ourselves and the nature of uh, suffering and the nature of liberation the best we can and then bring that, you know, that understanding to some or that attitude into the situation you're in and take a look for yourself to see, okay, this conflict at work, you know, how am I relating to that conflict? That would always be my first question. That would always be my first question. Is if this conflict that you're facing with somebody, you know, how am I relating to that conflict? What am I doing? You know, and then often I would look at, do I have an agenda? You know, do I want to be a peacemaker here? Do I, do, am I afraid of what's going on? Is there a fear in my heart around this conflict? You know, so I would investigate and take a look at what I'm bringing into that conflict. Am I contributing in some way? How am I reacting? What kind of aversion do I have towards this experience? And so by taking a look at that, all of a sudden that begins to open up a little bit of room so that you don't have to act in an unconscious way. And then all of a sudden we're becoming wiser. And then that hopefully, and I, I think this is really true, it's not that we don't ever make mistakes because we, we do make mistakes. In fact, oftentimes people will say, um, very profound teacher once described wisdom as not repeating your mistakes. You know, learning from your mistakes, learning from the interactions that you're having. And all of us have to learn. You know, when I think sometimes about how I related to conflict in the past, let's just say, compared to how I relate to conflict now, it's fundamentally different. There's a lot more space and openness and creativity in my mind when I'm facing conflict. It doesn't mean I like it, but I'm looking. You know, I'm looking at the whole situation the best I can, the best I can. And I'm trying to rely on some of the resources like calm, like equanimity, like mindfulness of reactions, so that when I go into that situation, I'm not just contributing to it. No, but there's no guarantees. What? The world of value choices, once you cultivate that skill, mindful, calm, deep your mind, does the Pasta principle offer anything about the substance of what would be fair, what would be... I don't think so. I mean, I mean, they're but well, they're qualities, right? But they're well. I mean, there are other qualities that we're developing in practice, like loving kindness, like generosity, like compassion, and all of those qualities are endlessly useful in those kinds of situations. You know, for instance, one thing I noticed. I remember one time I was in conflict with somebody who I was working with a long time ago. I was in conflict, and you know, I took up the metta practice you know, the practice of loving kindness. And the first thing I did was I said it to myself mm -hmm. because I was feeling, feeling anxious. 
in, in, in this whole situation. And what I needed to do was nurture a little bit of calm. So I, so I chose this phrase, may I be at ease. And I used to do that. Every time I knew that I was interacting with this person, I would send myself metta. You know? And it made a huge difference. In other words, it really allowed me to be in that situation with some resource that I didn't have before. And eventually, it took me a little while, but eventually I was actually able to send that person metta. And that made a big difference. It made a really big I wasn't quite there yet, but eventually I got there. And it made a huge difference. And it didn't mean that I approved of what that person was doing or that I was letting that person off the hook or approved the way they were relating to me. Not at all. But yet what I did see was that this sense of separation that I was creating in my mind, too, from this conflict, this very solid wall that was building between the two of us, began to dissolve. And I was actually beginning to see where this person was coming from. A little bit of compassion was creeping in around why this person was taking that particular position, and I could see it was defensive, that she was really trying to protect something. And, you know, it made a huge difference in terms of how to, to relate to that particular so situation. value towards the conflict resolution, do you describe that as well? Because the, the benefits to productive... We, we should have an interview sometime. No, you should come, you know, you can schedule interviews to the office, and we, then we have like a half an hour. And then we could really talk about specifics. You know, like really what situation are you confronting at work and is there a way of navigating that in a wise way? We could definitely talk about that. Yeah. Um, I think I may be one of those people who thought that I was getting somewhere and then <laughs> realized that yeah. wasn't. But, um, yeah, good been, for you. I've been practicing for a while, but I think recently I've just been in some kind of just challenging conditions. Yeah. Like a lot of anger and uh, has mm. been coming up and it's just, it's like really hard to sit with it. I mean, it's really hard to not be reactive. I feel like I've just yeah. like, lost my balance and lost my calm. So I don't know, I don't know if this is, a, this is a, I guess, a question about what do you do with strong emotions and then also, mm. I mean, you sort of alluded to it, just kind of being, getting a little disheartened as you move through and like yeah. encounter like something that you just, it's like, feels so unwieldy, you can't really exactly. control. Yeah, or you get overwhelmed by it. Or, yeah, it's yeah, like, no, it's right. overwhelming, and then I'm reactive, and then I'm like, yeah. wow, I'm yeah. turned into a live wire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was so peaceful a couple months ago. Yeah, so. yeah, that's, well, that's, that's how it goes sometimes, actually. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think you're pointing to something, which is that the conditions in our life change sometimes. You know, sometimes the things that are going on in our life are more provocative. You know, it's just more difficult. And so the calm that we might have experienced when things were a little bit more peaceful or when things were on track or we weren't dealing with a lot of change or turmoil or conflict in our life, then those, those conditions actually support concentration. You know, when, you, when the conditions are good, you know, in the sense that they're not constantly provoking you, that actually supports concentration. That's why sometimes people go on long retreats because they're going in conditions that aren't as provocative as oftentimes the ones we deal with at work or whatever it is. And one of the fruits of that is you can develop a lot of concentration and quiet and calm. And, uh, but, you know, uh, concentration is a little bit overplayed. Um, I mean, it's, uh, there's too much attachment to that notion of concentration. And the Buddha discovered that even in his own practice, that after six years he had to let go of this attachment to concentration and realize that he had to take a look at the conditions that he was facing in his life. Um, and so that, you know, that led to insights along the way, but he actually had to see the suffering that he was engaged in by his attachment to concentration before he let go and explored it in another way. 
so that insight of seeing things change. And yeah, you know, the fact is when we begin to practice, it could be the outside change, conditions changing, and that's provoking something. But it also could be as you develop a little bit more mindfulness, you know, as you nurture this sense of being a little more accepting or kind of getting behind that a little bit more, uh, that's bringing things to the surface. You know, I, I mean, so I don't know the specifics of your situation, but if it's not something outside, I would say that could be the, what's actually happening. Quite often is that the painful emotions, the aversion, the things that we tend to accumulate that we've kind of managed to push down for one reason or another because it wasn't okay, they begin to surface. And those times when that's like that, um, it's not always like that, but those times it can be particularly challenging and it can, turn, it can push us into a real spin, you know, where we're spiraling into self-doubt, in discouragement. And we actually think that we're doing something wrong. But the fact is our practice is actually maturing. You know, that's why we don't say, you know, don't evaluate your practice based on what's arising. You know, don't. Because as practice deepens, sometimes really difficult things surface. You know, and, and then it takes working with it. You know, it's like take work, developing wisdom and compassion in relationship to these changing conditions. So, to me, if you're dealing with a lot of anger, the classic antidote that the Buddha suggested when that energy becomes overwhelming or when, that, when it's kind of impossible to kind of take a look at it in a non-judgmental way, the antidote that the Buddha suggested for fear or anger, any form of aversion, was the metta, a loving-kindness practice. You know? And so if, if you notice that you're carrying around a lot of judgments or your practice has changed and you're feeling more reactive, more impatient, you know, uh, more fearful, you know, things are coming to the surface, are bubbling up, and, and we're just not able to gain balance, the practice of loving-kindness can be extremely useful for nurturing not only calm, but nurturing that inner resource of expansiveness of mind. You know, that sense of moving towards unconditional acceptance. You know, unconditional acceptance. See, that's the key with metta. It's not uh, limited by what you think you're, who you think you are or what you're going through. It's really, it's unconditional in its nature. Uh, so metta is an extremely helpful practice. And you might need to, to take up metta as part of your practice or your whole practice for three months or six months and just see if it doesn't lead to a more balanced mind that then might enable you to kind of explore that energy if it, if it arises again or if it continues to arise. But right now, as I said, you know, there's so many obstacles and challenges, it's really helpful to be humble. Really helpful to be humble. The, the meditation master that I've worked with the most, who I think is like one of the most advanced people I know, the one quality that I admire the most about him is his humility, his genuine humility. Now, he's confident because he's been around the block and he knows what's going on, for sure, a lot more than me. Yet, he's genuinely, genuinely coming from a, a humble place. Not modest in that sense, but humble. You know, he realizes that it's an incredible path and that there's always something to learn. You know, and that's a good attitude to have in practice. Because, but it's also important to realize that this kind of thing is very natural. You know, that strong emotions might be coming up. But it probably points to the fact that you need to take a look at it. Yeah. I had an experience, um, I was actually at the retreat a couple weeks ago, where a couple minutes before we had a sit, I was reminded, I won't get into it, get into it but I was reminded of a past teacher I had who I missed very much. 
And I just started crying and crying mm. and crying, and I was alone. And you know, the bell rang, and I was, I was like, ugh. So I went to sit, and then I sat down, and once everyone got all settled, and I just, I just felt this huge desire. I just needed to cry. And my question is, what do you do when you're about to sit down? And like, like, I just felt like it was different than my mind. It was just like a physical body reaction where I just needed to sob and sob and sob. So I left the, the hall. I oh. went to my room. And I just cried. I had that privacy. I mean, yeah. I felt better. Good for you. I felt so much better. And Good then that sit that night was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe it all, actually. You know what? Yeah. yeah, right. So I'm confused, you know. Yeah. I'm very, I'm new to the practice, and, you know, yeah. you sit down, and you observe what's coming up, and you have these emotions, anger, sadness, yeah, sure, terror. Yeah, sure, sure. I felt like that was just, I don't know, what's your, but, you know. Yeah, well, welcome aboard. I mean, you know, I think. Uh, <laughs> was, emotions uh, come. Yeah. Uh, yeah and it was, it was this huge physical trembling. Yeah. It, it was so powerful. Yeah. I had not experienced that in years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it sounds healing, I guess. It was. Is, yeah. is kind of my take on it all, uh, and it's actually par for the course sometimes on retreats, uh, because that deep stuff, those memories or whatever comes up, you know. And I think you handled it really well, actually. I mean, you could have cried in the hall, but it felt like you probably needed the kind of the safety and the privacy, yeah. so that you could really let it out. And I think that was a wise choice in that particular situation. And I think you, you took care of yourself. Um, but, you know, when we talk about observing, we're not talking about observing from a distance, you know, so that we don't get affected by the things that we encounter. It's not like that, actually. It, it's not like we develop a certain kind of detachment or indifference to life. We actually get much closer to our emotional life, actually, through practice. And that's what you're really seeing, is that in that openness, of practice, you know, you got close to something that was inside you that you've been carrying around for a while, uh, and that it surfaced. That's what practice does. We really develop this intimacy with really deep places inside ourselves, uh, and sometimes on those emotions, they really have to come out. You know, they really have to come out. That's just the only way that we're going to understand it, feel it, explore it, and let it go. You know, and move into the next moment. So I think you handled yourself very well. And nobody even told you to do that, so that's good. You, did, you found that for yourself. Yeah. I've been trying to finish a writing project from being, not from becoming, and just to stay relaxed. Yeah, good. And, you know, to find it the way that I want to. But yeah. without my knowing it, you know, I shift into becoming, like that striving, which then becomes my next obstacle. Yeah. It just overtakes me, and it, it, it slips past my awareness, and I'm just wondering yeah. how I can stay connected um, to my, you know, to source, you know, while I'm writing. Well, you're off to, off to a good start, because you're recognizing it. That's the most important thing you can do, is to recognize it the best you can, you know, and as often as you can. Remember I said about being humble. The reason we have to be humble is not that we're terrible people. Um, it's just that we're very conditioned and that things take us away in a very repetitive, habitual way. And this is part of your conditioning. And it's, what's interesting is, you know, when you begin to see that conditioning, you know, come up and you wake up to that fact, you realize that that's kind of a suffering, that you don't necessarily want to feed. So that's good. 
And then oftentimes, you know, you want to hold it with some degree of compassion because my guess is there might be some anxiety underneath that, you know? And a lot of times that's the case when we have an agenda. It's because we're anxious about what the result might be, you know? And, and writers, I talk quite, you know, a lot of artists and a lot of writers in this community. And, you know, they come in with the, all of them come in with the same problem, but they think it's their problem, you know? And it's like, you know, it's a difficult process. It's, you're asking a lot of yourself just to be present without getting caught up in that conditioning. So recognizing that, having some compassion for that suffering, but seeing it gives you an opportunity to not feed it. So even if you woke up to it a hundred times in a day, that if you kept seeing your mind go there, see, I would take that as a good sign. Mm -hmm. See, that's, I wouldn't get discouraged by that. I'd take that as a good sign. The more often you can notice it, that's pointing to the fact that your practice is deepening. You know? And that's why we're the worst evaluators of what's happening for us in practice. You know, why sometimes it's helpful to talk to a teacher. Because we get an idea, you know, when we start seeing our conditioning, that you know, we're not practicing right, or why can't we get rid of this, or why does this keep coming up? I'm practicing, but this thing, I keep falling into that habit. I know better. I know that I'm supposed to be present, and that's the whole, you know, that will feed the creative process and all that, but I still keep doing that. You know? But if you see that 10 or 15 and 20 times a day, you know, that's good, because then you're not reinforcing it anymore. And slowly but surely, the way Dharma works in general for our conditioning is sometimes there's a big dropping away, you know, definitely. It doesn't mean it doesn't come back, but there can be significant dropping away. But a lot of the time, it's the slow erosion, you know, of seeing it over and over again, not feeding it, and then slowly it begins to erode away. It, and then, lo and behold, we're not even aware when it drops away. Yeah, I know. Exactly. That's it. That's it. And I don't blame you for wanting that because you can see the suffering and not doing that. But you can see when you have that agenda, it gets in the way of, right, it adds another layer of judgment on you. And that's what you don't want to feed. Exactly. Like you can have the aspiration to be present, like I said. But attaching to being that way at all times, that's going to cause some suffering. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to say down, set my intention. Exactly. And then just keep noticing when you go away from that. But notice it, this is key, key, the attitude, I didn't mention this, but the attitude is friendly awareness, okay? Friendly awareness. It's not like you're on, watching over your shoulder for every little mistake that you make or every time you get caught in your conditioning, okay? No, it's friendly, it's loving. That's the quality of mind, oh, there I go again, oh, there I go again, there I go again. At some point, you'll smile. You know, at some point, there won't be as much suffering in that. You'll see it, you'll recognize it, and it just disappears. So that, remember I said my driving is my practice? This is your practice. <laughs> Mine is to see the impatience. If I have an idea that I shouldn't be ever impatient, I'm going to be impatient with myself. You know, I, might, I might stop being impatient with other people, but I'll get impatient with myself, and then that'll come out towards other people. Same with you. Because there's a big teaching in what you're doing. You know, you're taking it as a meditative practice. It's a, you know, you're asking yourself to be present. That, that's practice. Yeah, it doesn't happen automatically. Yeah. One more. Did, did you have your hand up? No? Scratching or something maybe? No? One more. I've been struggling to establish a meditation practice for about two years after doing a 10-day retreat. It's my first one. Mm. 
Mm. Um, I do find trying to practice mindfulness in my daily life to be helpful, but every time I sit down on the cushion, it's very, very difficult. I have trouble having the motivation to stay sitting. Um, and something that's been coming up to me is a big doubt. Mm. I mean, the, the fruits of, of the path are something that takes a long time to attain. So how do I know that I'm on the right path? There are lots of people that claim to have a path. And yeah. It takes a long time. Well, don't, don't buy into that totally, that it takes a long time, okay? I mean, you know, it all, it all depends on what your standards are, you know? I mean, I'd say have low standards at the beginning. You know, like enlightenment, hey, okay, that'd be nice, okay? But let's just talk about a little bit, you know, developing a capacity to, to be a little bit more present, a little bit more accepting, you know, of who you are and what your experience is on the cushion. Let's just say that's our aspiration for the time being. Like, let's let the big experiences go for a while because they're kind of getting in the way. That's what I feel. So when you actually sit down and you say you have a difficult time, what is actually going on? What is causing you to have a difficult time? Question. Not rhetorical. Question. Often painful. Physically painful? Physically painful. Oh, this is easy then. Yeah. Okay. I mean, physically painful and then also often restlessness and then often thinking of a lot of other things that I'd rather be doing with my time. Okay. Okay. What position do you... Yeah, yeah. Familiar with that. What position... Pretty much like this. That's not the right position. I want you to be sitting in one of those things back there or on one of these things that I'm sitting on. Okay? If you're sitting with a lot of pain, you're really swimming upstream. You're making your life more difficult than it need be. Okay? Remember I said the practice is full of challenges and obstacles. Well, one of your obstacles is being attached to sitting like that. Okay? So let it go. Give yourself a break. Okay? Give yourself a break. Find a, a position that feels comfortable because that will make it easier. Okay? It will make it easier. And it won't fuel so much contraction and aversion in the mind. You know, if you're sitting in a lot of pain, why would you want to? You know, it would take tremendous motivation, and it's not to say, you know, we, we do encounter some pain in, in practice, but, you know, it, it adds a whole nother, you, know, you have to be, like, totally dedicated. And then, if you're totally dedicated, then your expectations, you know, builds, you, they have to be really high, because here you are sitting in agony. You know, so, you know, when's enlightenment coming? It's not coming. I'm just feeling bored and restless and I want to be doing something else. Well, that thought becomes very powerful. So, important to try to find a position that actually is comfortable for you for 15 or 20 or 25 minutes. Drop the notion of 10-day retreat. Let the past go, okay? Move into what works for you now. You know, find the middle path. Sit for 20 or 30 minutes when you sit. Sit in a chair. Or sit in a, on a meditation bench. Find a comfortable position that allows you to sit relatively still. Okay? That's a really good start. Okay? And then, once again, um, so you, yeah, I'd just be curious, why don't we just stop there? I'd be curious, uh, do you live around here? I live in Dorchester. Okay, come and see me sometime after you've done this for a little while, like a month or two. And let me know how it's going. Uh, I'd be curious. I'd be genuinely interested to see if that doesn't help support the sitting practice a little bit more. You know, so just let's let's find find out, and then we can talk about more things. Okay.
why don't we stop? Um, it's almost nine o'clock, so we should cut it, cut the discussion. Um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.